Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So yeah, we've been on hiatus with the podcast for almost a year. Uh, I stopped doing it because we just got too busy uh, with other projects and other things. Um, But I've had a lot of people email me, tweet me, Facebook me asking, hey, when are you going to bring the podcast back? Uh, So we're doing it now. And uh, I'm really excited about our guest that we have on uh, today. His name is Dr. Alex Lickerman. He is a physician, a practicing physician, but he's also the author of a a book that just came out uh, last November. It's called The Undefeated Mind on the Science of Constructing an Indestructible Self. It's all about building your resilience, uh, something we've talked about on the site before. And uh, he goes into depth, brings in a lot of scientific studies that talk about how you can become more resilient, how you can... um, strengthen your, I guess, your mental fortitude to handle whatever challenges that come your way. Well, Alex, welcome to the the show. We appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, Undefeated Mind, that's what the title of your book is called. How would you describe a person with an undefeated mind, and why is it so important that we try to develop this undefeated mind that you talk about? So I think about an undefeated mind as basically a mind that is resilient. And by resilient, I mean two things. And there's sort of two sides of one coin. The first side is that when bad things happen, when adversity strikes, when tragedy lands on you, that you are able to not just survive it, but actually thrive in the face of it. So that may mean you go through it maintaining uh, you know, your, your, uh, your poise and your confidence, or maybe you go through it and you're horribly discouraged and even depressed and anxious, but that at the end of it, you come out of it sort of not just back to where you were, but even stronger in some way. Um, the, the other side of that coin, though, is that when you are striving to achieve something, you have a goal that you don't know how you, you don't know if you can do it, that when the obstacles arise, that invariably arise whenever people uh, try to achieve something great, uh, when those arise, that even if you become discouraged, that doesn't stop you, that you continue on no matter what, that you don't give up when everything is telling you to give up and you feel like you need to give up or that it's hopeless, but you go on and then uh, even if you don't achieve your goal, the reason you don't achieve it isn't because you quit, but just because it didn't work out. So resilience and hardihood is how you describe someone with the undefeated mind. Yeah, that's basically it. Personality hardiness. Yeah. Yes. So what experiences in your life 
um, led you to discovering the principles and practices that you talk about in your book? Um, I found that very fascinating. You talk about some of your experience. What were some of those uh, principles and or some of those experiences that led to the book? Yeah. So I, um, as I talk about in the book, I'm a Buddhist, and I started practicing Buddhism uh, my first year of medical school. And frankly, up until that point, um, I hadn't really encountered uh, any obstacles or tragedy in my life out of the ordinary. Uh, and then uh, the woman who introduced me to Buddhism uh, in the, my first year of medical school was a woman I then began dating. She was the first great love of my life, and when we broke up, I was just absolutely devastated. I was, I was uh, in retrospect now, uh, absolutely clinically depressed. But since it was only my first year of medical school, I hadn't yet learned to diagnose that, so I didn't know I was depressed. Uh, and I was just um, completely shattered by it. And um, the practice of Buddhism involves chanting. It's a little bit foreign to many of those of us raised in the West, uh, but it's sort of a, a form of meditation. And it was actually while doing that and chanting about the fact that I was just suffering far out of proportion to what I thought I should be just because I had uh, broken up with my girlfriend, that I had a, 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 a great insight, an epiphany, that the reason I was suffering uh, really had nothing to do with the fact that she and I had broken up, but what I believed that meant. And what I believed that meant, I was surprised to discover at that moment, was that I could never be happy, that without this woman to love me, I, my, my chance at happiness was gone. And I um, was stunned to discover this. And from that insight, I, I realized that the key to being happy, you know, how can we be happy when so many terrible things happen to us? There's no way any of us get to live a life without having trauma and tragedy happen in our lives. It just doesn't happen. You live long enough, something's going to happen. So how can we be happy when those things happen? And the answer is we have to become so strong that no matter what happens to us, we feel we have some power, some ability to overcome whatever it is that's happened. Uh, even if it's not overcome it in a way we want to overcome it, but still in some way achieve some kind of victory so that we can say, we're done with this. We, we got through it, we overcame it, and we're moving on and, and maintain our ability to be happy. It really, the bottom line is it comes down to happiness is strength. Yeah. And I, what I found fascinating was um, your, your practice of Buddhism. And what, you, you, you practice a particular kind of Buddhism that I, I never heard of. What's it called again? It's called Nichiren Buddhism. Okay. And it's, uh, the practice is chanting a phrase, which is Namyo Horenge Kyo. Mm -hmm. And um, the idea the Buddhists will tell you that the reason chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo has the power it does is because you're tapping in to a mystic life principle. Um, I don't actually believe that, I have mm -hmm. to say. Uh, but I have still found that chanting that phrase over and over again, with uh, it's not like meditation where you are trying to uh, focus on the moment and clear your mind of thoughts. It's actually, um, in a sense, it's a war cry. It is a, you are making determinations when you are chanting to, that you're going to solve your problems. Because a lot of times problems occur to us or happen in our lives, and we think we know how to solve them. And we try those things, and they don't work. And we, then we try something else, and it doesn't work. And when we exhaust those possibilities, typically what we do is go back and start trying the thing we tried the first time, even though it didn't work the first time, because we're out of ideas. What I've learned through the practice of Buddhism is that there often are answers buried within me somewhere that uh, either haven't occurred to me, or they have, but I haven't truly opened my mind to the possibility of trying to employ some of those answers because they're either too fearful, I'm too fearful, or they seem to risk too much. What I have learned is that um, 
when I when I chant with a, a, a focused determination to overcome a particular problem, answers will often come to me and it just sort of pop up, just the way thoughts do that are surprising, that are not things I would have thought of on my own, but that end up often being the very things I need to do, and sometimes uh, things I don't want to do, but if I can only muster the courage to do them, they end up being the things that enable me to solve the problem. What I found fascinating was uh, the insights you gained um, from Buddhism and you know, ancient philosophy. What I found fascinating throughout the book, you show how cognitive science is actually confirming the insights that these you know, ancient philosophers had thousands of years ago. Um, you know, that's what actually sparked my interest in writing the book, was that, that you know, in studying Buddhism for all these years I've done, uh, I, and, and being a physician and taking care of patients, I'm, I'm very much uh, evidence-based. I need, I need something proven to me to really believe it. And uh, I started looking into a lot of research that ended up sort of supporting a lot of these 2,500-year-old ideas. And, you know, we finally applied modern scientific methods to ans- asking these questions, and the answers end up being what the, the Buddhism has been talking about all along. So it's kind of a neat synergy. Yeah. So going back to what you talked about, your experience with uh, you know, breaking up with the, the first love of your life, and you said the thing that really, I guess the epiphany you had was your change of perception, right? You had this yes. perception change. And it seems yes. like that was a, a main thread throughout your book. That's a main principle. When I, what I found um, uh, interesting, I'm not very familiar with Buddhism, but one, one philosophy that I am flo- um, familiar with is Stoicism. Uh, mm-hmm. of the ancient Romans, you know, Seneca and Marcus yep. Aurelius. And that's something they talk about too, that um, our, the pain that we experience in life often isn't, you know, caused by the, you know, a tragedy. It's our perception of that tragedy. Um, and that's, that's kind of a hard, I guess, a hard concept for us moderns to, to swallow this idea that our perception is what causes us pain. It is, uh, but there, Buddhism and, and Stoicism are very similar that way. The, the idea is that um, it really isn't what happens to us, it's how we think about what happens to us that affects the way we feel about it. And uh, this is not too hard a concept really to grasp if you pause for a few minutes and examine just your own reactions to things you know, in your own life. When something bad happens or something difficult arises in your path uh, you know, when you're trying to reach a goal, if you feel that you can manage it. It may be uncomfortable and it may, uh, you know, be uh, depressing to imagine, but you're not defeated by it if you feel confident to be able to solve that problem, if you're thinking about it in such a way that you can solve the problem. On the other hand, if something happens where you think, I don't know what to do, the, the next thought that most of us have, the automatic thought is, therefore, there is nothing that we can do. Uh, and therefore, that's when depression can set in. And so it really is our thoughts about things that govern our emotional responses. It's our emotional responses that matter. You know, are we suffering over this or are we not? And uh, there's this thing, uh, this really is uh, reflected in modern psychology and cognitive neuroscience. There's this notion of the self-explanatory style that we all bring to our lives. So when things happen, we typically explain them to ourselves. Why did I fail that test? Or why did that girl turn me down for a date? And we come up with our explanations that we don't notice this, but we, we quickly settle on them as true. We, without often any evidence whatsoever, our first thought often is what we decide. This is the reason. The girl turned me down because uh, I'm not good-looking enough or uh, because she's snobby or I failed that test because I'm just not a good test taker. What we don't realize is that these ideas are just that. They're just ideas. You know, we, they may be right, but more often than not, they're wrong. And yet we completely believe them without any question, the moment we think them, most of the time. And that governs num- num- not only how we think about 
what happened and therefore how we feel about what happened, but also what we're going to do. You know, so if a test taker, someone fails a test, and they say, I, I'm just not a good test taker. I failed that test because I stink at taking tests. They're, they're far more likely uh, to not study for a makeup test and fail it again. But if instead they tell themselves when they fail a test, you know, I, I failed that test because I just didn't study hard enough. I got to study harder. Well, then they're much more likely to study harder the next time, and therefore more likely to pass the test. So it's not even just how you feel about what happens to you that is determined by your perception, but what you do about it and what you're able to do about it. Yeah. So do you think, as I read this book, um, I started thinking about, uh, I have ancestors, right, that crossed the plains in covered wagons. And, you know, you read journal entries that they face so many, so much adversity. Uh, yeah. Children died. And I just, and yet despite that, uh, they're, they're able to continue, they're able to thrive. Um, and I, I look at my life, and I, I think I couldn't do that. I mean, I can't believe what they were able to do. Do you think modern society in some ways has made us less resilient in some ways? No, no, I don't. I think that your estimation of what you're able to handle is wrong. You can handle far more than you think you can. It's interesting because they've done studies uh, on people's expectations for how they will be affected by trauma in the future. And uh, reliably, people far overestimate how devastated they will be by imagined traumas uh, and, and don't actually predict how well they'll be happy in the future either. So you look back, back at your ancestors who went through some of those trials and you say to yourself, I, I could never have done this. But in fact, were you confronted with it? The answer might be very different. And you don't really know how strong you are, how resilient you are, until you are facing a trial that forces you to be resilient, you know, in a sense you know, strength only appears when you are forced to lift a heavy weight. That's when you know how strong you are. So I, I suspect that um, in general, the, the population uh, alive now, modern people, are actually as resilient as our ancestors. We just haven't had to face the same things, for which, you know, we're all very grateful. But yeah. um, if we were to, I think we would surprise ourselves. Yeah. So I guess the the takeaway there is whenever you go, whenever you do face a, a really, I don't know, life-changing adversity or life-changing challenge, uh, I guess the uh, takeaway is realize you're going to be able to get through it, that you're stronger than you think you are. Absolutely right. And interestingly, um, when you look, at, you look at studies of people who've actually gone through horrible things that most people don't go through, and you, you look and see over time how they do, most of the time most people not only get through those things, they come right back to their, certain, their, their previous level of happiness, whatever that was, eventually. But what's interesting is when you tell people that and you say, you know, there really are great studies that show as awful as it seems today, you will eventually be happy again. Knowing that, even when people believe it, does not by itself make going through that thing easier. Mm -hmm. It's not enough just to know it, but um, sometimes it is. Sometimes people will have that thought and they think, I will be happy again. And when they believe it, that can sort of get them through this. But, but again, that's why I wrote the book, to sort of hand people techniques they can do to sort of maintain their confidence and their resilience when they're going through those really difficult times. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits started at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. 
So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. And now back to the show. Definitely. So another one of my favorite concepts in your book uh, is this idea of turning poison into medicine. And uh, can you explain what you mean by this and maybe give an example of turning poison into medicine? Sure. So it's a Buddhist idea, and the notion is that um, it seems to be inherent within the human mind, the human heart, that when um, tragedy or trauma, adversity strikes, uh, we are so quick to judge the final value of those events as all bad, um, that in fact we have within us the capability of transforming events that appear to be all bad at once into something that creates value for us. Now, this does not mean that you can reverse necessarily the bad thing that's happened to you. You know, if, if some, you know, your, your son dies, some horrible thing, it doesn't mean that you're going to bring that son back to life by any means. Um, nor does it mean necessarily you're going to be as happy as you were or that you're going to ever stop hurting or missing, you know, your son. But what it means is that there is nothing that can happen to you, no matter how awful you can imagine it, from which you cannot create value, some value. And in fact, in that really the most extreme circumstance, you talk about parents losing children. Studies have actually shown that um, parents actually do get surprising benefits from that, as, as almost kind of perverse that sounds, uh, that they become closer to their surviving children, that they uh, become more courageous in general. I'm not for a minute suggesting that those benefits make up for such a loss, but a lot of times in more mundane, uh, uh, more common losses and, and, and uh, traumas that we may suffer, you actually can come out actually ahead. It, it, you just can't predict the future. So, you know, um, the, uh, the example that I would give, which I think I write about in the book as well, is um, my, when I was a second-year medical student, uh, right after my girlfriend's first love we talked about, and I broke up, I became so depressed. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't study. And I failed part one of the national board exam. And I thought my life was over. I thought, I, you know, if you, if you don't pass part one, you can't graduate medical school. Uh, I was already in debt, and I thought, I'm not going to become a doctor. I don't know what to do because I didn't have time to study for it. You're supposed to launch into the third year, which is where you do all your work with patients, uh, a year that is renowned for swallowing um, days uh, at a time of a person's time. So, um, you know, I thought this is the worst possible thing that could have happened to me. But um, so rather than give up, I, I just decided, okay. So my choice is to, to drop out of medical school or I'm going to find some way to study this test, take it again, and pass it. And I, I decided that's what I was going to try to do. I ultimately did it, um, you know, by completely eliminating any free time, any social time whatsoever for a year, uh, and um, got through it and um, scored actually above the mean, which I had never done in any test prior to, to medical, in, in medical school. Uh, and then, uh, so I thought, okay, I, I got through that. I, I graduated, uh, got a great residency, and, and ended up uh, as a, a teaching attending at the University of Chicago. Um, and then one day, uh, a student had come to see me uh, who had failed her third-year internal medicine clerkship, her, her rotation up on the wards, 
again, you can imagine, just devastated. And uh, I found myself telling her the story of how I had almost completely flunked out of medical school, but I persevered and, and was able to, to succeed and, and eventually um, uh, uh, pass the test. And I told her, you know, I realized that being forced to go back and study all that material made me a better doctor, that I, as a result of having to learn that material again, I learned it and could sort of manipulate it and think about medicine and science in a way that I was looking around and seeing my peers really weren't doing. And in many instances, it was leading me to make diagnoses I really didn't think I otherwise would have made. But then the real benefit, the real medicine of that poisonous experience was then suddenly I had this story to tell her. And in telling her, I could see, I, I literally was watching her, hearing my story and her face changing, thinking, I know what she was thinking. She was thinking, if he could do it, then I could do it. And I think, you know, even if we can't find some benefit in horrible tragedy or trauma that's happened to us and we don't, you know, actually turn it into some real uh, victory that, that we feel in some way we won, we can always use those experiences to, to encourage other people and, and in that way create a value that can be surprising to us and, and really actually enable us to one day say, I'm almost glad that happened to me because I've been able to encourage so many people with that story. And I have with that story. That's fantastic. So what um, do you think is one of the more counterintuitive principles or practices that you talk about in the book that, uh, that if someone applied, they would become more resilient, uh, more hardy. But if you told them that, hey, you need to do this, they would think, nah, that, that wouldn't work. And I'm not going to do that. Are there, any, are there any counterintuitive principles or practices like that? So one of them that I consider counterintuitive, at least it was to me when I sort of stumbled across it, um, is the notion of accepting pain. Um, you know, people who, uh, like, say, lift weights really hard, they get this already. They understand that pain is gain. But when you apply that sort of to your life, it becomes a little less obvious how that can be beneficial. But it basically works like this. So it turns out that a lot of suffering that people experience in life is not as a result of bad things happening to them, but it's as a result of them trying to run away from the bad feelings that bad things happening causes. So people turn to drugs and alcohol because they're, uh, they're um, anxious about things and end up destroying their lives when, you know, really just trying to avoid the feeling of anxiety. Or men will try to sabotage relationships with women prevent the women from breaking up with them because they have such a fear of rejection. And so they, they, they ruin perfectly healthy and happy relationships because of their fear. They're trying to avoid something that feels bad. And so, you know, the idea that there is legitimate pain for us to feel and that when we feel it, we should allow ourselves to feel it um, can be very powerful because we all have goals in life, and it is often our own um, uncomfortable feelings that prevent us from achieving them. So, for example, if, if a man wants to ask a woman out or maybe go to parties to meet women but has horrible social anxiety, just really has a hard time doing that, it's actually the, the feeling anxiety that they, they want to avoid, and so they learn to avoid it by avoiding the circumstances that trigger it, meaning you know, asking women out and going to parties. On the other hand, they have this goal of wanting to meet somebody. So what do they do? Well, this, there's this new therapy uh, called acceptance and commitment therapy that basically talks about this notion of acceptance, which is that you say to yourself, uh, my goal is not to stop feeling anxiety. I'm going to allow myself to feel anxiety, and I'm going to actually take the action that's going to get me towards my goal, even if it makes me feel anxious. I'm just going to, I'm going to accept. I'm going to feel anxious. Just that mental um, 180 where you, you stop 
reflexively trying to avoid those painful feelings and allow yourself to feel them is incredibly empowering and adds to resilience. And, and interestingly, paradoxically, what studies have shown is that when people actually approach, say, anxiety that way, it actually reduces anxiety, which importantly is not the goal. It's not the goal. The goal is to actually become more comfortable feeling it and not allowing it to stop you from doing what you need to do to accomplish the goals that you have. Um, and so I've actually, you know, done this work, introduced this principle to many patients of mine who have told me anecdotally it really does work. When you suddenly transform yourself from someone who does everything they can to avoid whatever pain you're feeling, you know, it can be even physical pain, uh, to someone who sort of bucks up and says, yeah, I can withstand this. It's really awful. It's really uncomfortable, but I'm just going to suck it up. Suddenly you become really powerful and the things you are able to do will surprise you. Huh. Seems like, yeah, by taking away the uncertainty of pain, except, yeah, just no, you're no longer uncertain that there will be pain, that anxiety clears up. Yes. I mean, you, you accept the fact and you actually, in a sense, almost embrace it. You know, the way a weightlifter embraces the pain of, of lifting weights because he understands it's that pain that represents hard work and therefore growth. And so the experience of feeling even physical pain when you understand that it does not mean harm that it's okay to feel it, uh, it's much less emotionally aversive. And it's interesting, they've actually studied when, when people experience pain that is caused intentionally by someone, it actually hurts more hmm. than when pain is caused by someone accidentally. The way we think about it has a profound effect on our subjective experience of it. That's really interesting. Well, here's the last question. Um, as I read this book, uh, I just, I kind of perceived that uh, developing an under, undefeated mind is a lifelong process. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. Um, so my question is, how do you maintain the motivation to develop an undefeated mind or a more resilient personality when you face setbacks in the process? Because I've, I've had this challenge. I, I'm trying to work on becoming more hardy and more resilient. And I'll do good uh, for a few weeks, and then I'll have this something happens where I just I, 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 uh, I break down and I kind of have this breakdown in my resilience. Um, and you get, and so you kind of, I begin this like cycle where I get discouraged about I'm, my inability to be, to be resilient. And I get and I sort of this horrible cycle where I just, uh, sort of remunerate about things. Um, so yeah, how, what's your advice on someone who wants to develop a more resilient attitude, a more undefeated mind? Uh, how do they maintain that motivation to do that? So if I use what you just uh, said as an example, um, you would, you would uh, think about it like a dieter. Somebody's trying to lose weight. So what, what dooms people who are trying to lose weight is not when they, when they cheat on one day and, and think, uh, you know, they've blown it. That's, it turns out that uh, caloric intake um, on a daily basis does not correlate to long-term weight gain or weight loss, which means if, you, if one day out of the week you eat terribly, um, but they immediately go back to, eat, to following your diet, it's as if that one day didn't happen. What dooms people who are dieting is when that one day happens, when, when they give in to temptation and they, they blow their diet, then they say to themselves, well, I've blown it. And they, they call themselves all types of names, and then they, they say, well, I might as well give up because I've blown it already. It's too late. And then it is the subsequent days that actually ruin them. So if, for example, you know, when you're trying to become a resilient person, you're doing really well, and then something happens, you get knocked off the horse, and then you, you say, ah, oh, I blew it again, and I just I can't do this. First thing is you don't judge yourself, because you know, being resilient does not mean you don't get knocked off your horse. It means you get back up on it. And so um, it, it's really hard 
to practice the things I talk in the, about in the book, uh, to develop yourself into a more resilient person when you're not facing something that m- makes you need to be resilient. And of course, if you're not facing that at the, at the moment, it's okay. You don't need to sort of practice these things other than to sort of be prepared so when something does happen, you can reflexively go to them. But I, I view like when things hit you as an opportunity for you to train yourself to be more resilient. Sort of like you know, when, you, when you lift weights, uh, you're not going to feel your strength, experience your strength, or actually inc- increase your strength unless you're actually lifting them. There's got to be some obstacle for you to push against. So, in fact, it's those very moments when you feel most discouraged that you have the greatest opportunity to actually become resilient. But even, even I, you know, I've been this Buddhist for 20-plus years, and I wrote this book. When, when bad things happen, often my first reflexive response is, oh, no, and what am I going to do? And I can't survive this. Uh, and then you start to have to, you, you have to reflexively get in the habit of examining your negative self-talk and recognize that this is just another voice in your head and, and say, remind yourself, I do have the tools to become resilient. I just have to grab a hold and pick them up. Um, sometimes that takes longer. You know, you don't do it right away. Sometimes it takes a week, sometimes longer, but at some point you do have to say to yourself, okay, I have to own the situation. I have to figure out what I can do and, um, take care of myself and buff up or buck up my inner self so that I can actually manage the situation. So once you suddenly start having those thoughts, and then you remember, oh, yeah, I, there are these things I can do. I've learned to do that actually will lead me to success and help to buoy my, my life condition um, while I'm going through this. So it, it is like anything else. It takes continual practice, and to, which means sometimes you'll be better at it and sometimes not as good. Be very gentle with yourself. If you don't meet your expectations today, that's fine. That's okay. As long as you try again tomorrow, you are being resilient. Very good. Well, that's actually really helpful for me. Well, uh, Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to with us. Uh, the book is The Undefeated Mind on the Science of Constructing an Indestructible Self, and you can find that on Amazon. Alex, thanks again for being with us. Oh, thanks so much. I really enjoyed talking. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness podcast at artofmanliness.com. And until next time, stay manly. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.